Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ on this second Sunday in Lent. Amen. A few years ago, one of our church members, Myrna Miller, went on a trip to Israel, and when she came back, she told us all about it at the Senior Saints luncheon, and she mentioned how at one place her tour group stopped at, there were pieces of clay pottery from the first century, time of Jesus, maybe before, just scattered all over the spot where they were at. You could just walk all over it and and pick it up and look at it. It had inscriptions on it, and I thought, I'm listening to this story, and I'm thinking, you know, it's not that I don't believe Myrna, but there's just something just, like, you would never see that here, like, artifacts and things like that are carefully collected and, and preserved and put on display. Like, I, I just couldn't imagine stepping uh, all over ancient pottery that's just scattered everywhere, right? Well, I didn't think about that much too much longer after that until about a year later, Jill and I went to Israel, and we stopped. The first place our tour guide takes us after picking us up at the airport is this place, Bet Shemesh, just west of Jerusalem in the western hill country there. And we were the lower left-hand corner. We were just parked right there across from that highway. And uh, sure enough, there's pottery, little bits of ancient pottery from the first century, the time of Jesus, whatever, all scattered with inscriptions all over it. And sure enough, yeah, just as Myrna had said. And, you know, we were told, you know, don't pick, don't, you can't pick it up and take it with you, just leave it where it is. And, you know, this whole neighborhood here, nice modern neighborhood, looks like something from, you know, Florida or somewhere, you know, built, built on top of an old city. There's pottery and all kinds of stuff buried under these modern homes. It's just everywhere. That's how they did it back then. They just built village on top of village, city on top of city. And there's all kinds of stuff there. Well, as interesting as all that stuff was, I wish I had been as lucky as Elon Levy. Mr. Levy is the international media advisor to the president of Israel. He's an author, journalist, scholar of political science, and a lecturer. And just this last December, he and a friend were hiking around this place, Tel Lakshish, not far from Beit Shemesh, and he and his friend are walking around this place, and he just happens to look down and finds a piece of clay lying there with an inscription on it, year 24 of Darius the king. Now, you may have heard of Darius. Darius is mentioned in several books of the Old Testament, including Esther and Daniel. And Darius was king of Persia who ruled over a large area including Israel. Now, this is a big deal. I wish I could show you a picture of it, but it's credited, and I don't have permission from the photographer. So just picture a little piece of broken clay pottery with an ancient inscription on it. It's a big deal because this clay piece is the first archaeological evidence of King Darius to be found in the land of Israel. Yeah. In fact, Mr. Levy couldn't believe it. When he stumbled onto it, he said he looked right and left to see if there was anybody recording him because he thought someone was playing a practical joke on him. Well, I was excited about this discovery, too. 
I mean, these kinds of discoveries give credit to the authenticity of Scripture. They back it up and give it more of a firm foundation. Or so you would want them to. I was going to use this amazing new discovery as an example of the reliability of biblical history. But doesn't God say somewhere in the Bible, don't put your trust in men? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Psalm 146. Put not your trust in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Blessed is he whose hope is in the Lord his God. You see, it turns out I shouldn't feel I should be as lucky as Elon Levy. And Elon Levy was right to think that something was up when he found that piece of clay. As I was writing this sermon, a report came in on the story that the inscription is a fake. Yeah. This was happening in real time as I was in my office writing this. I even saw Elon Levy's response to all this on his Twitter account. He said, oops. <laughs> well, it's not his fault. Okay, the artifact was unintentionally left there by a foreign archaeologist a year earlier who was at the site doing some excavation. And apparently she picked up a piece of pottery that had nothing on it and scribbled the ancient Persian script uh, to show some students there how it was done. And she left it, she dropped it, whatever, you know, inadvertently left it there, and then Elon finds it a year later. Well, needless to say, the Israel Antiquities Authority is not happy about this. You know, they say it was negligent, sloppy work on her part, and it causes nothing but confusion, which it did. That's why when you usually hear about these kinds of discoveries, the artifact in question was found years earlier before you even hear the story, right? Because it takes time for the archaeological community to examine this stuff and come to a conclusion and a consensus about its uh, authenticity. So, good old King Darius remains unverified in the land of Israel. Too bad, right? Okay, but not so for others, including King David, whose inscription has been found in Israel and verified as authentic, as well as Pontius Pilate's, and of course, Jesus Christ, especially Jesus, because there's all kinds of inscriptions of crosses and fish, which was a kind of secret code emblem for Christians that are found in the land of Israel. It's all over the place. Okay, but we don't need artifacts or new archaeological discoveries to strengthen our faith, even though they are very interesting when they're found. I mean, wouldn't it be something if the inscription of Jesus, King of the Jews, that was put on the cross was found? Wouldn't it be something if that was found? Whew, man, that would be something. Now, it's not hard to imagine that there was more, more than one fake of that thing going around by the time of Martin Luther because the church had amassed thousands of fake relics such as the nails that held Jesus on the cross and the sponge that fed, fed him the sour wine and crowns of the, the crown of thorns and, and, and pieces of the cross itself. Yeah, the, the indulgences and the abuses of the church are certainly at the center of the Reformation but we tend to skip over the relics part of it that was such a problem for the church as well. By the time of Luther, the church was teaching that if you approached, say, 
the sword that Peter used to cut the ear off the servant in, in Gethsemane, by approaching that thing, paying a fee to see it, encased in glass or whatever, and being in its presence and gazing at it, you would receive merit from God towards your salvation. That's what the church was, was teaching. And of course, not everybody bought into this, right? Luther and his colleagues knew better. They joked with each other about how you could see Jesus' robe that he wore the day that he died in the cathedral in Vienna, and, and on the very same day, you could see it in, in the church in Salzburg, right? You know, which one is it? Both of them are fake. Relics were a distraction from Christ. They neither saved anyone nor had any special powers to bless. But people put their trust in them anyway. And in a way, I kind of know how it feels now to be distracted by something that isn't going to make God's word any more effective and fruitful for faith than it already is. I mean, I fell into that trap. I spent hours researching this dumb piece of clay that was found. <laughs> thinking, wow, this is amazing. It's going to help us, you know, embolden our faith. No, it's not the way it works. This temptation to sin in that way, is, it's, it's there for all of us. Because, I mean, wouldn't it be great if some new discovery was made, some physical evidence that God exists and Jesus was in Jerusalem and the things that the Bible says that happened to him can be verified. Wouldn't that be something this is especially tempting in today's world when science is seen as the answer for everything and Christianity is viewed by many as just a hokey religion. From a scientific perspective, that Darius inscription, had it been authentic, would have been an encouraging stimulus to the church, would it not? Yeah, I mean, a shot in the arm, so to speak, to the Christian defense of biblical history, but let's be real. Even if the cross of Christ itself was discovered intact outside Jerusalem in the place where it says that it was at in the Bible, people would still continue to disbelieve. Jesus says to Nicodemus, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You won't find Nicodemus' inscription on any clay pots in the Holy Land or on any coins there. He's only mentioned in John, and he doesn't appear to become a follower of Jesus. He does recognize that Jesus is from God and that he can do miraculous things, but he has a hard time understanding the concept of being born again in the Spirit. He has a hard time understanding this thing about becoming a new person in the Spirit. It's, it's lost on him. Now, Nicodemus, Nicodemus will defend Jesus later on in the, in the account. Uh, he'll defend Jesus in the company of his co-workers, the Pharisees, his compatriots. And that puts him in danger of being excommunicated from the Jewish establishment. If you've watched the series, The Chosen, it portrays Nicodemus as a well-to-do, I mean, it says here in John, he was a ruler of the Jews, ruler of the Jewish scribes, right? So he's not just some, any old Pharisee. He is a ruler. He's at risk of being excommunicated from the Jewish establishment by even talking to Jesus. 
So in The Chosen, they portray him as a well-to-do. He's got a wife who is very into the materialistic things. They've got a nice house. They've got all these possessions. He doesn't want to lose his job by being seen by talking to Jesus. So he comes to him at night so that he's not seen. We believe this is why John mentions that. He comes to Jesus at night. He doesn't want to be seen talking to a man from God because all of Nicodemus's compatriots are against Jesus. All they want to do is trap him in a lie and kill him. Isn't there a little bit of Nicodemus in all of us? If we sound or seem too Christian, we might be excommunicated from our group of friends or family or peers who don't exactly have godly things on their minds or lips. It's a fear. During the time of Luther and the Reformation, Christians who had left the Catholic Church and gone to Luther's side didn't want the Catholic Church to find out about it, and they were called Nicodemites. After Nicodemus, you believe in secret, or you at least, in Nicodemus's case, talk to Jesus in secret, right? Uh, Nicodemites, after the Reformation, were secret believers, not wanting to be found out by the parent church. Historically, Christians accept that Nicodemus was willing to learn from Jesus and even defended him and helped bury Jesus' body after he was crucified, but we stop short of saying that he was a believer and a follower of Jesus. I mean, it is possible, we just don't know. That's... Nevertheless, Nicodemus is the man who receives perhaps the most famous line in all of the New Testament. Directly from the mouth of God in the flesh. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It was spoken at that moment. Now those words, or at least the verse numbers anyways, are held up on signs by fans at countless sports games, in arenas and stadiums, seen by thousands, even millions of people on broadcast network television and cable TV every year. They're all over. Those verses are all over evangelism tracts, Christian pamphlets, and church signs out in front of churches across this nation. People claim to have become believers because of that one verse. When those words were originally spoken, they were spoken to one man, Nicodemus. And because John wrote about it, these words have been spoken to millions, billions perhaps. They've been spoken to you and me many times over. And you've heard them again today. Don't put your trust in man. Don't put your trust in artifacts or archaeology. Trust me, I know. <laughs> the only inscriptions we need are the words written here and in your Bibles. They give you life from the Spirit, and you have received it. The words perform what they say. You have eternal life. Amen.